You're listening to Alter Guild, and I'm Derek Tronsgaard. All this season, we've been talking about promises. The promises of being a parent, of baptism, of promises before marriage, of divorce, and even the promise of finding hope in the midst of death. And despite the fact that promises are common, that we make and break them all the time, at the core of all promises is a mystery. A few weeks ago, I stopped by the office of one of my favorite teachers, Andy Root. Andy's a theologian, and he's a professor of youth ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul. And in his fantastic book with an even cooler title, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies, Andy explores science, faith, and the mystery that connects them. And the part of his book in our conversation that struck me the most was how he tells the life story of one of the most notorious scientists in history, Charles Darwin. As we all know, Darwin is famous for his theory of evolution, which transformed the way that we see biology and the way we see ourselves as humans. But it has been blasted by a lot of people in the church over the years as being blasphemous, as if it's this affront to God's holy created order. There's this idea that we didn't simply pop out of the dirt in the Garden of Eden, and for some, that's a huge threat to their faith. But, as Andy explains, Darwin wasn't an enemy of the church. He wasn't hell-bent on disproving faith or converting people to atheism. Actually, at the beginning of his life, Darwin wanted to go to seminary and to be a pastor, but the twists and turns of his life led him in a different direction. And it was Darwin's personal journey of heartbreak and sorrow which caused him to have a crisis of faith, giving up on his dreams to be a parish pastor, and instead, as fate would have it, uncover one of the most groundbreaking discoveries in human scientific history. It's also a story of a man wrestling with the question of what it means to be human, what it means to love somebody, to lose them, and how to find meaning in the midst of the suffering. Here's Andy. Well, yeah, I mean, it really is true. I mean, whether you are talking to, like, your cousin who's a, you know, very kind of conservative Christian creationist, or you're talking to a disciple of Richard Dawkins, they both kind of claim this view of Darwin. Like, one claims, like, Darwin's a terrible guy. He was trying to destroy the church. And, he, oh, you know, nothing's worse than um, Darwin's... We dang- should make a museum about how he's wrong. Yeah, yeah right, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, or you go to, you know, someone like Richard Dawkins or his disciples. It's like, oh, Darwin, he, he's the one who sticks the knife in Christianity. And uh, Darwin was right, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's just not the Darwin historically. You know, like, Darwin was much more like, uh, I guess my joke is much more like Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey than he was like, you know, Darth Vader or Hannibal Lecter, you know. He was this kind of British gentleman. And uh, not a very, as a young man, not one that you would think much was going to come of. You know, that everyone in the Darwin family um, who were, you know, British British gentlemen and uh, genteel, uh, they all went to Edinburgh and were to become doctors. And his father was actually known as the doctor. Uh, They just called him doctor. Um, So uh, uh, Darwin goes um, and he fails out, basically. And one of the reasons he fails out is he's got his own stomach issues. He's dealing with his own stomach issues. But he's a very, very sensitive soul, which is one of the things that we forget about Darwin or don't know about Darwin is that he's no raider. He's actually a very shy uh, gentle person, and he and he watches a young kid um, 
go through surgery. I mean, one of the things you have to do as a medical student is watch a surgery. And you can imagine, and we're talking middle of the 19th century, to watch a surgery was horrific. It was painful. And we forget this. I don't know if you've ever watched. We, you and I are both t- big TV people. But if you've watched, um, have you ever watched The Nick on yeah, Cinemax? I mean, no. uh, we, I only watch it when we get like the free weekends, you know. But yeah. it's so good. I think there's only two or three seasons. But it's like 19th century Knickerbocker um, uh, uh, hospital kind of stuff and so and then the, the main doctor gets hooked on cocaine and there's all this really it's really it's really Cinemax, fascinating. right yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating but one of the things that we forget is like doing surgery right after the civil war in this country if you wanted to get surgery done you went to a barber like a barber would do surgery. Can you imagine that? Oh. And a lot of these guys were like, they were the medics in the Civil War, and then they cut your hair and they cut you open and did, you know, they took your hair. I have like a out. Great Clips app on my phone, and well, I'm just trying to think of how that would work out. <laughs> could you imagine going to sports clips to get your next vasectomy? That's the kind of world Darwin was like going to school in. And so we watched this little girl, I think it was, go through this surgery, and he couldn't take it. And he just like left. And the only way he could deal with his own stomach aches and just the anxiety of failing out of medical school and hating that medicine basically meant torture in the 19th century is that he would go beetling. And beetling was like the hipster cool thing to do back wait, wait, in the day. Wait. Okay, what's beetling? Is that like... It's when you walk through nature and look for beetles and then log them in a book. Is that like with the pins and the... I think it was with, okay. the, the, with the pins and stuff. But uh, there was this whole big movement, especially for like upper crust Brits to uh, get into nature. I mean, you got to kind of think like this is new railroad and you go into London and there's just soot and steam, industrial revolution it's, it's total Charles Dickens. Total Charles yep. Dickens. Victorian England, yeah. Yep. So to, to escape and like go out into the streams and then to like everyone wanted to catalog everything for some reason and they like catalog bugs and things like that became a big thing to do and people many people were doing this were kind of upper crust clergy and the clergy at this time was really important but there was this rumbling in kind of Charles Dickens England this rumbling of people upset with the clergy feeling like the clergy got paid too much but the scientists really were the clergy so so Darwin basically fails out of med school, or at least the doctor says, I'm not paying for this. So he's got to get him a good career. He doesn't know what to do. And all the kid wants to do is walk in streams and look at bugs. He's a hipster. He's a hipster, man. He's a total hipster. And so he sends him to Cambridge, and he uh, sends him um, to divinity school. So here you go. Supposedly, the Hannibal Lecter, um, the person who wants to kill Faith, was a seminary student. And he goes through and and passes all his divinity um, uh, degrees and and does really well and the idea is that he'll take a country parish and he'll do his his beetling and he'll uh have a live a good life and have a noble profession as a clergy person at this time and that that's the whole idea except there that when he arrives the theologian that's really in the mix at cambridge is this guy named paley william paley and he's got this theory that you've all your listeners have probably heard before because it's it's a bad theory, but we've kind of all been told this, which is that um, his, it was the, it's called the, 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 um, the watch theory. And his whole point is if you're walking through a park and you see a watch and you pick it up, you have to know, I mean, just by looking at it, you know that there must be a creator to it because look at how the gears move and look at how it, how it works. And basically Darwin was discontent with that theory. And when he got out of the Beagle and actually did his whole, you know, going to the Galapagos and all that stuff, what he really discovered looking at kind of the early, the early uh, growth of the, the theory of evolution was that you don't necessarily need 
a watchmaker to get this, that you can, there are ways that you could get this without a watchmaker. So one of the things that we think is that this is really about doing away with God. That's not really what Darwin is getting at. He's trying to say that the mechanisms, um, you, don't need a, you don't need to look at this as a mechanical machine that there are other ways to see this. But he stops going to church not because of the theory of evolution at all. And as a matter of fact, he held back the theory of evolution because he was afraid that people would use it to attack the clergy because you had this growing mob of people against the high-paying clergy. Remember those days? My gosh, weren't we like that? Yeah. Um, but uh, he holds it back. But he ends up going and stopped going to church because uh, his own daughter, I can't remember her age now, around 8, 9, 10, something like that, gets the same stomach issues he has, but hers eventually kill her. I have to think that of that parallel, that here was, as a med student, he couldn't watch the anguish of a child in surgery. And his own wife was pregnant at the time. They took, her to, they took uh, Anna to a specialist, and she died with him holding her hand without his wife there. And that anguish broke Darwin's heart. And um, for the rest of his life, he would walk his family to the, to the country parish where they lived. He would drop them off at the door of the church, and he would walk in the woods. Still supported the church financially, still would talk to the vicar often, um, but he just couldn't go inside the church. But it wasn't because of the theory of evolution, is my point. It was because he was a father with a broken heart. To, 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 to kind of round this all out, Asa Gray, who was a uh, botanist um, and, and theorist at Harvard, uh, was really the one who got the first theories of, of, um, of evolution from, from letters, uh, that he was a uh, correspondent, I think 300 letters between him and him, Darwin. And he was a very devoted, again, Nicene Christian. And he saw that evolution uh, was ex could be exactly imagined as the way God would act. Darwin couldn't go there, but Darwin couldn't go there not because the theory innately said it couldn't go there. Darwin couldn't go there because he was a father with a broken heart and didn't know. Um, he, he doubted God's goodness, not because of the theory of evolution, but because he watched his little daughter die. There is a mystery inherent in all of this, and science can't possibly explain it all. The theory of evolution can tell us that Darwin cared for his daughter because of evolutionary adaptations designed to protect and care for his offspring so that his genes could be successfully passed down to future generations. It can also tell us that Darwin loved his daughter because of hormones and chemicals in his brain. But is that all that love is? Is that really it? Or is there more to it? Can that really explain the depths of Darwin's heartbreak as he's holding his daughter's hand as she slips away? Or is there a deeper mystery present? What I love about Andy's work is that most people would ditch science at this point. They would say that this is the end of the road. This is the point where you stop measuring and charting and testing. This is where science needs to butt out and let faith take over. But instead of retreating from science, instead of going for the easy way out and ditching it, Andy welcomes science back in, alongside faith, to explore the deeper mystery and promise of what it is to live and love and to be in relationship. Again, here's Andy. It's one thing to have a faith 
in theology or of a theology and science conversation. Like you, in many ways, it's I don't want to say it's easy, but it, it can be easy. You're talking academic fields across each other. You can find points of integration. You can find points where there's disagreement, but you can kind of respect each other, whatever. I think it's a, a completely different ballgame to be a pastor and then have to wrestle with these scientific questions because they don't come kind of theoretically. They come existentially. You know, So yep. you have a 15-year-old or a 28-year-old or a 60 year old who comes to you and asks these questions like well if animals are being extinct now and we actually know with how many species we have that there have been millions and millions of other species that no longer exist anymore yeah does god care about that and if it's true that human humanity in a kind of in a timeline of kind of evolutionary history if you wanted to say it that way you know, we've only been around, if you did that in a, in a year, uh, if all the evolutionary history was in a year, we've only been around for hours. Mm-hmm. You know, like, can God really love us and know every hair in our head? Like, so there's these questions that really are about, at a, at a, at a broad level, about salvation. Like, how, uh, how can this God know me? How can this God um, care about the destiny of my being? Like, those are big questions that people of faith have that, that pastors have to to jump into with people. And these, so these scientific theories, though, I, I, they, I think in no way do they disprove this personal transcendent force like we were just talking about. Yep. But they do, I think, relativize our being. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you're like, holy shit. Think about space this big. Like, you know, how it's this expanding universe and how, how um, that's, that's, that's amazing. Or to just think about evolution and to think about how small, like I was saying, our timeline is on this in that if we existed like this, we are going to become extinct at some point. And what does it mean to say that God made us in God's image and then, well, it, it seems like at some point our destiny is to disappear. Um, what does that actually mean? Those are those are big questions that I think are asked by everyone at an existential level and not just at a theoretical level. So it's kind of easy to do, well, theology says this and this doctrinal history says that and now these scientific theories say this. But for someone to say, I've just been reading about the Big Bang or I just you know, saw, saw a Nova episode on PBS and they say that there are monster black holes at the center of each galaxy. Um, where's God? Pastor, what do I do with this? That becomes a whole different um, different question. And so I do take Big Bang cosmology and evolution and try to show that they're not fundamentally in opposition to the claims of a personal God in the world. If you look at the history of this theory, when uh, this Belgium Jesuit priest came up with a mathematical proof of this, of this Big Bang, everyone dismissed it because they said it was too religious. And now it's a conclusive scientific theory, and hence we, we, we all believe this. But there's this kind of sense of a singularity that, that, that breaks, breaks this open. And so, um, so I do think it t- starts to tell us something about the nature of God too, that this is a God who is quite patient. This is a God who gives time. And so one of the contributions I hope I make in the book, and I've tried to make through a lot of my other work, is to make this assertion that I think when you get into deep dialogue with these these kind of scientific theories like Big Bang cosmology, there's a way of thinking about God as a minister. And if God is just a huge kind of cosmic 
even royalty kind of force, um, then it is like, why does God take so long? Why does God need billions of years to do this? But if God takes, if God's own being is one that gives space to minister to creation and then, and then to create conscious beings in the world like us who are actually bestowed to minister to the world and minister to one another and minister to the created realm, that becomes a, I don't know, I see it, it, it becomes a beautiful proposition. And so we need a lot of time and a lot of space to get these beings who actually in God's image could be ministers could share in the depth of creation. And I actually think one of the key ministries that we're called to being made in the image of God is to minister to creation as it passes into death. So part of our job is to, to participate in the experience of death with all of creation. So the created realm then becomes this place that God ministers to, like the book of Job says. God doesn't God likes the weird weird stuff. I mean, that's a creation story of Job. God likes that weird shit. Like, God likes that. Um, and so because God ministers to it, and God takes joy in ministering to it, but this little planet, this little blue planet, and this little galaxy, and this little, you know, carbon goo in this huge, huge universe, God has created these conscious beings who he's called into ministry. And so all of us are created in the image of God, called to minister and care for each other in the midst of this big mystery called life. And we do it through promise. Alter Guild is hosted by Meta Herrick Carlson, Miriam Samuelson Roberts, Matthew Ian Fleming, and me, Derek Tronsgaard. Andy Root's new book, Exploding Stars, Dinosaurs, and Zombies, is available now through Fortress Press. We hope you enjoyed our second season, Promises, Promises. We'll be back next week with a sneak peek at some exciting new stuff that we're cooking up in the podcast lab. And if you like what we're doing, tell a friend about our show, leave us a review on iTunes, or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at slash AlterGuild. That's A-L-T-E-R. And as we go, we hope you'll listen, love, serve, and alter. Alter.